welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. This podcast, hosted by Kate Agnew and Marie Ferguson, will empower you to realize your professional dreams by giving you access to our global community of dietitians. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we'll educate you, inspire you, and help you create more impact as a dietitian. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. First, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land on which we're meeting. In my case, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. I'm Jane Winter, Account Director from Dietitian Connection, and I'm also an accredited practicing dietitian. Today, I'm really pleased to be joined by Glenn McIntosh, a psychologist who's passionate about eating, physical activity, weight, and body image. Glenn's an author, a podcast host, and founder of the Weight Management Psychology Clinic. So hi, Glenn. Thanks for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Thanks so much for having me, Jane. It's going to be great. And I know your passion is not just helping clients, but also training other professionals in, in imply, applying the psychological principles to their practice. So I guess that's really what we want to do today. Glenn is already a friend of the Dietitian Connection podcast. So if you're interested in knowing a bit more about him, you can go back to one of our earlier episodes and hear all about his uh, journey to where he is at the moment. Um, before we get into our discussion, this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for your information only. We advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking action. And I'd really like to thank Nestle Health Science for supporting the podcast episode today. So, Glenn, for all those listeners who are meeting you for the first time, do you want to tell us just a little bit about how you came to have such an interest in the psychology of weight? This is a funny one, Jane, because I'm so passionate about this area and people ask me this all the time and I wish I had a better answer, but I really just fell into it. I, um, I started off studying sport and exercise psychology. Um, interesting time being the Olympics now, but I found that, you know, chopping a millisecond off someone's swim time wasn't anywhere near as interesting to me as understanding the everyday person and their relationship with physical activity and movement. And then I just had a, a great mentor who, um, who was right into the psychology of eating and you put those two things together and the weight concern space is just a, the, the space I was meant to be in. And so given your passion, we're going to have to take a really close look at our timing today, yep, to Big make time. sure we don't have a four-hour podcast. Given my passion and my ability to talk. So you have, feel free to rein me in, Jane, if need be. Okay. So a client walks into your practice as a dietitian for weight loss and whether they're self-referred or they're referred from their doctors or maybe from another health professional, what's the first thing we should be considering when they present to us? This is a, this is a great question, Jane, because I think that probably weight concerns or weight loss is probably it's probably the most familiar story that most of our at least privately practicing dietitians are getting um so it's what most of our clients are coming in wanting um and i think that the first thing to do is just actually to discuss with that client their readiness to undertake a weight loss journey because a weight loss journey is a huge journey 
Um, and some of the things that I suppose we'd want to consider when it comes to readiness is some of those personal factors. So, um, you know, it, is the person, uh, does the person have enough support? Uh, is there anything that's going on in their life that might be taking up too much time? Um, things like individual psychology, are there any sort of mental health considerations that would prevent the person from, from undertaking this journey? But also, um, the second question is, you know, if the approach is appropriate, can, well, whether or not the approach is appropriate, considering is the weight loss approach the best approach for that person? So, for example, if the person uh, has a history of disordered eating or eating disorders, would they be better off to see a dietitian and or psychologist who specialise in eating disorders? Um, if the person has done, I often say to my clients, if you've done four, five, six diets, I don't want to be diet number seven. So if you're, you know, if a person comes in your door and they have had several supported unsuccessful attempts at weight loss, something like a non-dieting or a weight neutral approach might be better for them. Um, if your clients say, for example, a, a very high BMI with lots of comorbidities, have they considered bariatric surgery? So I think it's, it's really good at the start of the session, maybe something that we don't always do to actually take that session or two to talk through with the client and make sure that, that they're happy, that, that you're happy, you've taken that kind of reflective approach and you, you make sure that they're, you, you're pointed in the right direction, whatever that direction might be. Yeah, and actually the point there you said uh, over the first session or two, I imagine that sometimes this does take longer than just one session to work out which direction they need to go in. 100%, 100%. And I think it's something to do towards the beginning of your therapy. I mean, sometimes, um, uh, you know, I haven't done any dietetics consultations. I'm not a dietitian, but I do train and work with heaps of dietitians. I imagine that sometimes the first session or two is just data gathering. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then, yep, yeah, so totally. Not, it doesn't have to be by session one. We both know which way we're going to go. And I also imagine that often clients come in quite um, definite in what they think they're going to get out of that first session and that is probably a diet from mm -hmm. dietitians mm -hmm. um, and so this readiness discussion might actually be something quite uh, unusual for them or not what they're expecting from a consultation with a dietitian particularly. Yes totally totally and maybe a couple of tips that could help there uh, one, I always say to, to our psychologists, and, and we have a, one dietitian on our, our team as well, is we always do want to give the person something tangible and something useful, typically in that first session, so they can see the, the upfront value and they come back. Um, but one way that I find to help clients become more receptive to that discussion of, you know, okay, let's reflect on what direction we want to head in, um, is actually just to, to talk about their past um, dieting experiences and most people have a history of dieting failure they say look we don't want to repeat that so I could just give you a meal plan but I think it's better if we actually you know take a more considered approach to this and I think that typically you'll find that most clients will be open to that yes that, yeah that's good advice so all right once you've worked with a client you've gone through that readiness um, setting and obviously we've abbreviated that a lot here but you've both established that they are ready to embark on a weight loss approach where do you start? I think a really good place to start, and, and, and I think you raised a good point there where you talked about, you know, some clients are going to respond in different ways. I think a good way to start in general, and obviously this wouldn't be something you would necessarily do with all clients, but I think as a general principle, 
a brilliant place to start is with goal setting. Now, goal setting is a fantastic tool for motivation um, and it's a great way to set your client up for long-term success. But we do have to do goal setting for a client who has weight concerns and who wants to lose weight in a way that, that gets the benefits of goal setting, all the motivation, but avoids some of the, the sabotage that can sometimes come along with the goal setting process. So I think that we have to be quite careful in the way that we do that. Um, in psychology, we, we often talk about false hopes of self-change. And these um, there are some seminal non-dieting researchers, uh, Peter Herman and Janet Palivi, that have applied this uh, research to people with weight concerns. Um, and we talk about these four false hopes that most of our clients are coming into our sessions with. And these false hopes are that they're going to lose weight quickly, that the weight loss is going to happen really easily, that the weight losses are going to be really big and the weight losses are going to be sometimes unrealistically life-changing. So these false hopes are a product of diet marketing uh, and they, do, they probably do get clients in our doors, but what they do is they leave us underprepared for the actual reality of weight change. And so when things don't go according to those false hopes, they actually set us up for sabotage. And, and from a psychological perspective, the unfortunate thing is that we then blame ourselves for that sabotage. Uh, you know, I wasn't motivated enough. I didn't do the, the program properly. Um, that wasn't the one for me. I've got to try something different. Um, rather than looking at those false hopes themselves as being the things that kind of set us up for failure from the start. So we really want to, to sort of bring the motivation that that person has, has brought into the session, but we, we don't want them to take these false hopes into their journey of change. Yep, yep. So I guess, though, sometimes people who do make big lifestyle changes they may actually see some fast um, results potentially. Like if they do make a big change to their food patterns, a big change to their physical activity, they potentially could see some fast results. But what you're saying is that that number on the scales should not be the definition of success for them. I think there's a couple of things. I think that there's, you know, if we talk about the weight goal, uh, the weight goal should be realistic and it should be realistic long term. Uh, so we do know that those false hopes do start to creep up on people after that initial weight loss phase, which a lot of people will get. Yeah. Um, and so then when the, 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 um, the weight loss might slow and that might be because uh, the person's not sticking to the program as well as they were. Or it could be, you know, that we psychologists, we call that behavioural compensation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or it could be due to metabolic compensation. So things that you guys would understand far more than a psychologist is just the body is not happy to lose as much weight as quickly. So we, we do want to set up um, for when we're, we're doing goal setting for the long term. And I typically find that a year is a good sort of time frame to set some, some goals. A year is often short enough to still hold some motivation. So it's not like a five-year plan. Yes. Um, and we often will break it down into sort of um, into milestones along the way. 
Um, but it's, it's actually long enough also to create some habits. So one of your colleagues, Dr. Gina Cleo, who's a dietitian habits researcher um, in this space, um, talks about 18 to 254 days being the time it takes to create a habit. So there's a big variation in yeah. there. But if, you set a, if you're setting goals for about a year, you can get some pretty significant changes um, and you can also um, really make sure that you're actually creating habits, which is what this is all about. So, um, so I think that, that it's, um, that's one discussion that has to happen. There's, you know, often in weight research, we talk about the, 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 the 30% dream the average person, speaking in generalities, wants to lose thirty percent of their body weight, with the you know as contrasted by the ten percent reality. Um, so we have to be able to help our our clients understand the the reality of weight loss and have more real hopes, so they don't get into this false hope syndrome, whether it is towards the start or six or or nine months in. So, what other goals do you see people setting if they're not? specifically around weight and we're trying to move away from that specifically what, yeah. what sort of goals do people set yeah because I think it is always good one thing is that with the weight goals for those goals to be realistic and I often talk about realistic and holistic and that's that's a, a really good point Jane is that we 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 do want we do know that there are nasties associated with a dieting mindset and I'll use dieting mindset and weight focused mindset interchangeably uh, because that's really what a dieting mindset is, a, a focus on weight. And so this is a tricky area because our clients, are, especially the guys we're talking about today, are coming in for weight loss. But we do know that if the person becomes too focused on their weight, they run the risk of weight regain, they run the risk of mental health problems, uh, they run the risk of eating disorders and disordered eating. So we do want to help the client, I, I call it, it, it zooming out from the scales and creating some, some non-weight goals. The non-weight goals can be for anything. And a, a term that psychologists often use is primary goals of weight loss. So when we say primary goals of weight loss, what we actually mean is what are the anticipated benefits of losing weight? What do I think weight loss is going to bring me? Um, people don't just lose weight to lose weight. They lose weight because they think it'll make them feel better or they think it's going to help them attract a partner or they think it's going to improve their health. And so what we'll often do is ask the person, okay, well, what you know, what are you hoping to get out of this whole weight loss journey? And some of that will be weight related, but some of it won't actually be weight related. And so that then gives you a really good scope to start to set some, some non-weight goals. Let's use, say, um, physical fitness as an example. A lot of people lose weight so they can get fitter, but you don't have to, you know, go through the middleman of weight loss to get fitter. You can target fitness directly so that's what we'll often do is say to, to people let's look at and see if we can pull apart some of your primary goals and let's see if we can target some of them directly as well now i think a really important key when we're doing this is to make the non-weight goals as tangible as any weight goal because we know that weight goals and hyper focus on those goals can be problematic um but some often we're sort of contrasting that very clear weight goal with sort of airy fairy goals on the other end. So like I so want to feel better. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So for example, with our clients, if they say I want to feel better, we have a psychological profile for weight management, a questionnaire on our website that measures stress. Uh, it measures stress. It measures depression and anxiety. It measures body image. So we will say to them, go to that questionnaire 
let's get a measure of your mood and let's make a tangible goal so you can actually see that goal. So if it's a mindset goal, using our psychological profile for weight management is a great thing to do. Uh, if it's a fitness goal, let's not make it, I want to feel fitter. We'll, we'll make that tangible. We'll make it as real as any weight goal. What does that look like? If you can walk for a kilometer now without you know, keeling over, what would your goal be in a year? Would it be five kilometers? Would it be 10 kilometers? And, and so we, we, that's, you know, setting those tangible non-weight goals is a brilliant way to, to zoom out and make sure that the, the, the goal setting process is holistic. Because one final important thing on that is that we actually know that if we ask the simple question of people at the end of their weight loss journey, are you satisfied with your results? Not surprisingly, the people who say no are over twice as likely to regain weight. So what we want to do is they might have some weight goals, but if they reach their weight goals and they don't reach their non-weight goals, those primary goals of weight loss, then they're still going to be unsatisfied and they're putting themselves at a, a much likely, a greater likelihood of regaining the weight. And we know that, well, I think we know that uh, this the the journey is is difficult for anyone. The 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 weight loss journey. You don't ever hear really someone going, "Oh, it was, it was so easy. I just, you know, made a few changes. All good." Um, Only in the before and afters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. but so I gather that support from a professional is a really important predictor of success in this journey. Um, and is, is that right? Like, is providing that ongoing support really important from whoever that be, dietitian, psychologist? I would say in the weight loss space, it is necessary. So we know that the, the, the outcomes of traditional weight loss interventions in terms of regain, it's, you know, the, the long-term outcomes are really, really poor. I think that we probably, you know, deserve a D or maybe a D plus for, for, for the outcomes we get with weight, weight loss programs. Um, and also... Um, not only being ineffective for a lot of people, they run the risk of being harmful for people. And so a dietitian is in a perfect place to, A, provide the, the, the consistent support that can help people get better long-term outcomes. And it really is in the, the weight space, a, a continued care model. So seeing that person very regularly for a very long time. Um, and then also a person who can help them uh, prevent some of the harm that can be associated with dieting. And specifically there, what we see is that um, unsupported diets um, and uh, tend to have a much higher rate of eating disorders and weight regain. So uh, a dietitian is in a really unique space to, to help support that person on the journey and enhance the long-term results, but also minimize the risks along the way. Yeah, which is... A fair responsibility, and I think you know, dietitians uh, come to this space, especially uh, you know, more recently trained dietitians. Um, they're not psychologists; they may not have had a lot of opportunities to develop counselling skills outside of dietary counselling during their training. So, what are sort of some of the psychological, if you like, topics um, the dietitians can talk about with their clients on their journeys to help them through this? Yeah, you're right, Jane. I think that that, psycho that dietitians have to be 
half psychologists to do their job because so much of it is counselling, it's relationship building, it's behaviour change. And so that's why I actually do more training of dietitians than I do of psychologists. Um, and so I think that, and I, I think that it is improving. I'm hearing, hearing more and more from new grad dietitians that they are getting some more counselling, some more behaviour change, some more psychology in their training. Um, but it's something that you can really benefit from at any stage of your, your dietetic career because that is so much of, of your job. Look, there are there are so many things that that we could talk about, um, but I think that emotional eating is a really really big one. Something that dietitians will um, will be having to deal with day in day out. Body image concerns are probably another really big one. It's sort of what brings a lot of the clients to to the, the therapies. You know, you mentioned a doctor referral. The doctor may refer for health reasons. But if we're speaking on averages, we'd probably say the client's probably more concerned about their body image than they are about their health. So a lot of our clients have um, body concerns. And then also, I suppose, just um, just helping people along that journey. Like you said, it's such a big journey of change. And we know that behavior change is an up and down, back and forth, roundabout kind of process. It's not a linear process. So, so people need a lot of psychological support as, as they go through that process. And I think with both emotional eating and body image issues, I mean, let's face it, we can all empathise with that. Like, 100%. I'm sure every single person <laughs> has those um, have has confronted those to a greater or lesser extent somewhere along the line. So the one thing we're well-placed to do is empathise with our clients in, in what they're going through. It's just that I guess how that manifests might be more extreme in the clients that we're seeing. So if we sort of take emotional eating, how do we, how do we tackle that uh, mm-hmm. with our clients if we've decided that that's an issue? Look, I think you're right, Jane. I think that, that whether whatever the concern is, tackling it with, empathy is a great way to start and this is especially so for people who live in larger bodies because of course people who live in larger bodies experience a lot of weight stigma and we know that weight stigma it puts a spanner in the works of your therapy for a number of reasons so I think that compassion and empathy and understanding is a great place to start Um, and like you say that's not so hard because sometimes the only difference between us and our clients is the side of the table that we are on Um, So let's start with emotional eating. You know, emotional eating is a really big one. And as you say, it's very normal. It's very normal for us. We're all, most of us are emotional eaters to some degree. Um, But if a person has weight concerns, it it is something we're going to need to address. Um, You know, emotional eaters do tend to sit at higher body weights. They tend to be more likely to regain weight following a weight loss attempt. Uh, and as a result, they tend to be more likely to fluctuate in their weight over time. So it is something that we're going to, to want to address. I think if we're addressing emotional eating with compassion, we have to, as well as helping the, the client understand the importance of working on emotional eating, we do have to normalize it and say that emotional eating isn't bad, it's normal. In fact, sometimes it's delicious. Sometimes <laughs> it helps, uh, but but 
if the person is doing more of it than um, than they want to, then it's up to us to help them to reduce it, not to eliminate it completely, because we don't want people to feel bad when they're when they're doing any type of eating. But we we do want to reduce it. I think as at a beginning, it's important just to actually help the client understand what emotional eating is and define it properly. So. When we talk about emotional eating, and I just sort of cited all that research about emotional eating and weight concerns, what we're really talking about is eating in response to unpleasant feelings. So if you're, you know, really enjoying an ice cream, yes, that is emotional, but that's not what we would call emotional eating. It's when you're eating in response to those unpleasant or quote unquote negative emotions. Um, And I think that the first step in overcoming emotional eating is often helping your client to understand that it doesn't actually work very well. It's not a very effective coping strategy. In fact, in psychological terms, a psychologist would more talk about uh, emotional eating as being a defense mechanism. So something we do to protect ourselves from unpleasant feelings and we tend to do it in a fairly um, instinctive, fairly reactive kind of a way, as opposed to a coping strategy, which is something that we might do with reflection and mindfulness and do it in a more proactive way. So I think that that can be a useful discussion to have with your clients that, that emotional eating a lot of the time may not actually be a coping mechanism. It's more of a defense mechanism or an, or an unhealthy coping mechanism yeah that's a that's a really interesting way to put it and probably i've never really thought about it but how do you feel after eating as a in an emotional eating in a bad way you don't feel better whereas a coping mechanism hopefully you actually feel better at the end of it so if you're not feeling any better then it's not really working as a coping mechanism yeah Absolutely. And often, like you say, you feel worse. So I say sometimes that emotional eating is like double dipping on a bad mood. Yeah. Uh, it's, and the research does show us that if people are in an emotional or a binge eating situation, they may get some very temporary relief from the unpleasant feelings, but it really lasts only as long as the eating experience. And I think that that is actually a very powerful first step to, to A, have that discussion and that reflection in session. But then, of course, most of the changes for our clients happen between their sessions. And and that's the next step is is actually if that person can realize in real time that, you know, however I'm feeling at this time, the answer is probably not in the fridge, in the pantry, at the local convenience store, via Uber Eats. Um, The way that I talk about it is that there is no nutritional solution to an emotional problem. And, and often that realizing in real time as it's happening that emotional eating is not going to help you is the first step to, to then overcoming emotional eating because our minds, you know, we always want to feel better. And so if we can really realize in real time that this is not going to make us feel better, then, then our minds will begin to open the door to looking for, for actual coping strategies or things that will make us feel better. So do you have any nifty little tips to remind your clients when they're actually back at home faced with an emotional crisis, or I guess it doesn't have to be a crisis, but something problematic, um, some tips to remind them that the pantry is not the solution? 
Yeah, one thing that I do is I create a little more marvelous methods to manage my moods uh, sheet. <laughs> so you can you can find these on our website, or we're just actually writing them down on a piece of paper. So you can just use a piece of paper, or you can type them up with your clients. And so what we do is we 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 just brainstorm all of these better ways that people have to feel better. And that's a great thing to do because it gets the the client thinking about all of the literally thousands of alternatives that there are out there. What have I done in the past? What do other people do? And it gets those kind of creative juices flowing. Then what we typically do is we narrow that down to a workable list for the client. Um, so then, you know, then not having go for a run if they've got a broken leg mm. type thing, you know, so it's, it's things that will work for them. But it's still good to have a variety because they're going to need it in a variety of situations. And you, you, it's a good question, Jane, because we're in this paradox that often we have to be mindful in order to be mindful. Yeah. And emotional eating, we've just said, is an unconscious, reflexive, reactive process. So what we then do is we put the more marvelous methods to manage your moods on the fridge or on the pantry as a visual reminder when we need to be reminded. And look, that doesn't, of course, guarantee the person's just going to go, oh, that's a great idea. I'll do that new thing. But it does create the mindfulness and that that situation where we're now working with a pause point where the person can can make a choice rather than just go on autopilot. So that's yeah. a really good shotgun strategy. Look at all the different things that might be available to the person. I say, look at things for when you have no time. You know, you got to do something really quick. Look at things for when you're bored and you have too much time. Look yeah. at things for when you just, everyone's stressing you out and you just need to get out of the house or things when everyone's stressing you out, but you can't get out of the house. Look at things for when you've got too much energy. You need to, to you know, release some energy and look at things for when you've got no energy. So come up with a, a real um, smorgasbord of more marvelous methods and, and then you've got something to work with, but put it up on the fridge, put it up on the pantry, put it up so it reminds you at the time when you're making that decision. Yeah, that's a great idea. So then if we move on to body image issues, mm -hmm. um, how do we approach that topic? <laughs> that is a, <laughs> a great and a, a very, very big question. Um, yeah, so uh, could you, you just fix it like in the me, next 20 seconds? <laughs> oh, God, now I feel like I'm in a psychology session. <laughs> the dietitians get this too. <laughs> this <laughs> sure. big laundry list yeah. of problems and then, okay, now fix it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think you, you raised a, a good point, Jane, that, you know, this is a very common thing. In psychology, we talk about a normative discontent with our weight, meaning that it's actually normal to not be happy with your weight. And we even know that does, uh, that discontent does increase slightly as um, body weight and BMI increases, but it's certainly not as though people in larger bodies have the market on body image concerns. We do know that even if we, I'm not a big fan of BMI as a lot of people would know, but if we do look at, at uh, you know, in terms of BMI, even over 50% of women in the normal BMI category still have significant body image concerns. So it will be a lot of our, a lot of our clients. And I suppose there, I'm sure there are many dietitians who get clients in the normal BMI who still want to lose weight. Um, so why do we need to focus on body image? I think that we've already talked a little bit about 
that 30% desired weight loss versus 10% reality weight loss. And that's going to be hugely different for different people. But the reality is that even if somebody loses a significant amount of weight, and that we know that you can actually get, you know, clinically significant health benefits in very small amount of weight loss. And even some of the weight neutral studies tell us that you can get metabolic health benefits with no weight loss. So you could get a person who say in this example, they've lost a significant amount of weight, they've improved their health, their mobility is better, their, their chance of living a long life, their, their morbidity is reduced, everything's better. But because society places such a high uh, ideal on thinness, so this is a society we live in that stigmatizes fatness and idealizes thinness, and that thinness is really a hyper-thinness that isn't achievable for most people, especially throughout their lifespan, you're still likely to find that your person who, you know, from a clinical perspective, you would quote-unquote call a weight loss success story, isn't going to feel like a success story. Um, and so that gap uh, there in improving, because, and, you know, sometimes weight loss will improve body image. Um, not always, but sometimes it will. Um, but then if the person's still not happy with their body, if they're still uh, dissatisfied, if they're still preoccupied with the way that it looks, then that's a really good opportunity to start to work on body image. And to me, that sounds like, it's more in the domain of a psychologist. Like if you've managed to navigate through a weight loss journey, however that looks for the client, mm -hmm. but body image is still playing a role um, and, as you say, could potentially lead to weight regain and, and undoing the health changes, then mm -hmm. it sounds like it's, it's a time for referral. However, in the short term, are there any other little tips and tricks you have to try and help people kind of navigate their way through this body image dilemma? Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're, you're right. Um, you're right there, Jane. I think that this is a, a, a space similar to the emotional eating, you know, there's dietitians can do a, a bit of work in emotional eating and make some real impact, especially as they upskill themselves. And then there will be a point where they feel as though they're out of scope and this is really a psychologist's issue. So then they need to refer and work with that psychologist. And I think this is absolutely true, of course, for body image concerns. Um, because, of course, body image is psychological. Um, what do we do there? Apart from refer to the psychologist. Yes. Um, <laughs> It starts with, again, an education of the client, like we did with emotional eating, of helping them understand, well, what is body image? You know, body image is this term that we kind of all throw around and we kind of know what it means, but what actually is it? And my favourite definition of body image comes from uh, a guy named Thomas Cash, who's a leading researcher and practitioner in the body image space. Um, and he talks about body image being your relationship with your body. Um, so what we want to help the person understand is that their relationship with their body is different to just what their body looks like or different to just what their body weighs. So we, have, we want to help them understand the difference between a body weight concern and a body image concern. And, and, and if we can help them understand that maybe what they're, they're really seeking is a level of comfort, a le even a level of satisfaction, or maybe even just a level of acceptance uh, in the body, 
um, then we can actually start to, to sort of delve more into that mind space. Um, so a very, very simple thing to do, which may seem too simple, but is actually extremely powerful uh, and extremely powerful to the point where I will do this in sessions with my clients. I will take the time to actually physically do this in sessions, even if it takes two or three sessions, is to help our clients um, basically free themselves from all of the thin ideal imagery, all of the weight loss marketing, everything that is telling us that we need to lose weight, regardless of whether we need to or not. So, I suggest that we actually we actually go through, I call this a social media spring clean, and we actually will go through, okay, let's look at how many people you're following on Instagram. Let's look at how many pages you're following on Facebook, how many groups you're a part of. Let's look at all of your email subscriptions, even your magazine subscriptions, and we actually take numbers on them. And then there becomes an education about uh, thin ideal imagery and deconstructing dieting marketing. And then I'll give the client typically homework for spring cleaning their social media. We really want to declutter anything that makes you want to go towards a quick fix. Really, if you know, I think that probably with a, if they're working with a dietitian regularly, that dietitian should be the point of information, the point of, for lack of better words, truth for health advice. So we can really unfollow a lot of other health advice that might confuse the person, might sort of um, get in the way of the, the approach that you're following. Um, anything that makes the person feel less than, we do know that that a lot of um, weight loss imagery and thin ideal imagery uh, reduces people's mood. So it lowers your mood and also creates instant body dissatisfaction. So it's just anything that you look at that makes you go, oh, I don't feel great about that. I feel a bit less than. It raises my body concerns. Get rid of it. Now, an important point here is that um, developing media literacy can help. And we do know that media literacy can help improve body image in women who have body image concerns. But there's some more interesting research or some, some more recent research, which I think is really interesting coming out of the University of Sydney that shows that actually visually seeing uh, too much thin ideal imagery because we are bombarded with thin bodies and, and just seeing those, those images so often can warp our visual perception of what a normal body is. So I'm not talking about our beliefs or our attitudes. I'm talking about our actual perception of what a normal body looks like. That then becomes the standard to which we compare our own body and that brings that gives rise to the body dissatisfaction. So even if you can sort of look at ads and go, or, you know, Instagram influencers or things like that and think, oh, I know that they're trying to sell me something. I can deconstruct that. You can't actually unsee the image. So it's really important to declutter your precious mind from those images, even if you can consciously deconstruct them. So it's a very simple first step. But I think if you know, if you what I say to my clients, and it'd be similar in a dietetic session, I say, how can you expect me to help you improve your body image in one hour a week or one hour every couple of weeks when you're watching, viewing these images? for many hours every day it's just it's too hard a battle yeah and uh, i think dietitians uh would be 
only too happy to try and dissociate some of the influences from some of their clients. So <laughs> I have I'm sure that's out. something yep. that they will um, gladly take up. So, <laughs> okay, so we've done a, a quick uh, tour through emotional eating and, and body image. And so my apologies to the listeners that we are doing this in the essence of time to try and just give a top level ideas. Um, I guess the, the notion of uh, lapsing or, you know, someone who is on a path that probably that may be more focused around weight loss, they're doing really well, but then something happens. And I, I guess the past 18 months is probably a case in point with COVID. Um, there's been a massive upheaval to life. Um, how, how do we help people realise that that's not the end of the world, that they may have changed, gone back or reverted, if that's the right terminology? Yep. I think that the first thing, and again, we're coming back to compassion, but the first thing is actually normalising setbacks. Setbacks are a part of the process of change. So setbacks doesn't, if you have a setback, it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you're slack or you're lazy or that this approach is not right for you necessarily. It just means that you're playing the game. So that's really all that it it means. So I think that, uh, you know, and that's easier said than done to say to people, look, it's normal. Um, A couple of things that can help a person have self-compassion at that time uh, to one, congratulate them for coming back because we know that a lot of people will stop seeing their health professional once the results start to, they they don't feel like that. And we could tell them that to come back, uh, but they, they still can feel a sense of shame or embarrassment around not doing what the, you know, you guys had planned together. So the first thing would be to congratulate the person for being brave enough in coming back. The other thing is you want to, normalize setbacks for your clients, of course, when they happen, but to help them, you know, because often the reality is our clients just think, oh, my dietitians are saying that to make me feel better. (laughs) But we actually gain a lot of power if we normalize setbacks before they happen. So when we start that process, and it can be good in those first few sessions as we're setting up goals that um that free us from the 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 false hopes and and setting up for success not sabotage we're having those real hopes we can use that as a great opportunity to say now on this process this is not going to be a linear process so we need to prepare from this for this from the start um so that can be a really useful thing to do so when you get into that situation that there's at least a conscious understanding that that you've discussed this and that 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 the expectation wasn't that the client was going to do it perfectly then, which no client ever wants to do, you want to normalize setbacks after they happen. So when the person is back on track, using the setback as a learning experience, say, look, you know what, this is actually probably going to happen again. So we need to really learn from this uh, so there are fewer and further in between. But unfortunately, even when we learn from it, you're still going to have some. So what, it's not going to eliminate your setbacks. It's just going to make the, make the, the words I use are fewer and further between in the, in the future. Um, so I think that it's about, and I have a little bit of a, a setbacks playbook that I talk about in my book. And it's a very simple thing with, that we do with clients. And it's just like a four-step playbook for when you have a, a setback. Um, The first thing is just to have self-compassion. It is normal to struggle. 
I say to clients, rather than beat yourself up from for your humanness in failing, because it's human to fail, you know, give yourself some credit for your bravery to try. Because most people, you know, a lot of people aren't even brave enough to start this journey. Um, the second thing we do is we realize that we're not at square one. When you have a setback, you often feel like you've gone, and it's especially if you've reverted back completely to old behaviors, you often feel as though you're back at square one. But if you deconstruct it, you're often not at square one. You know, and I'm p- particularly at every turn, I'm I'm trying to help my clients de-emphasize weight. But let's take a weight loss example. If you resort back to a lot of emotional eating, you're 15 kilos lighter than you were, you're not at square one. <laughs> and so, so it's about helping clients realize that. And I think a a good way to do that is to talk through very simply, and we'll do this very quickly, the, the neuropsychology of change. You know, when you're creating new habits, those new habits, you're paving those pathways in your brain. And they start off as little beaten goat tracks. And then they become like a little lane, an alleyway. And then they become a, a proper road. And if your laneway to the new behaviors has become a proper road and then you revert back, you might feel as though you're back at square one, but you're back at square one with a really clear road that's going to be a lot easier for you to return to um, when you're when you're ready to to sort of pick yourself up and, and move again. So you, even though you might feel like you're at square one, you probably have created some changes or at least some neurological changes that mean that you're at square three, four, or five. Um, the next thing is about just getting back up. You know, because it doesn't matter uh, whether you have setbacks, it's not about whether you've had a setback or not. It's about how you stand back up. It's about how quickly you stand back up. Um, and it's also about, uh, I think for us, it's about the support you need to get. So that's a, a perfect time where, you know, it's a difficult time for our clients. So it's a great time for a dietitian to, to actually hold the client's hand and support them through what is a difficult time. And then the fourth step is just simply to reflect. Often we say the only uh, failure uh, in having a setback is a failure to learn from it. So if you can use it as a learning experience that helps us create self-compassion, but it also creates a reflective practice that we can use to actually learn what actually has gone on there and what can we put in place so that those setbacks are sort of fewer and, and further in between. Yeah, I like that that concept of setbacks being just a normal part of the process of change because if we think about any other aspect of our life, learning a new skill, um, starting a new job, learning a language, you can be going along really smoothly and then you're challenged by something that you haven't seen before or mm-hmm. haven't done or you something else happens and, of course, you have a setback. And, and that happens in every aspect of life completely so why should this be any different that it's absolutely it shouldn't be the end of the world yeah. totally and that's a wonderful way to you know wonderful way to explain these principles and psychologists sometimes we say if you if you see a psych you sometimes get inflicted with metaphor abuse <laughs> it's because metaphors are a great way to you know if we're feeling some embarrassment or shame around something a great way to depersonalize it and a great way for us to see uh, things in a different way and so yeah it's a great, and put it in know, perspective yeah 100 Okay, so finally, just really quickly, um, if I'm a dietitian, I have a client coming in, we're talking about a weight loss journey, uh, we've decided, or they've decided, or we've decided that that's what they want to embark on. Mm -hmm. What would you consider are sort of 
red flags for a dietitian? What should they be looking for to say you need help elsewhere or a weight loss journey really is not going to be the best thing at this time? What are sort of the alerts that we should be looking for? Mm-hmm. I would think that you know, if we, we talk about seeing, you know, when you would refer on to a, to a psychologist, for example, uh, I think that one time would be actually way before most dietitians would think you could refer on to a psychologist is when you continually are in that pattern of you guys decide on a, a plan between sessions and then the, the person comes back and they haven't been able to do it. There's some sort of psychological barrier. And that's often what psychology is, is bridging the gap between intention and action. So that's a very, very simple place to start. If, you've, if you're working really hard, the client's working really hard and they can't, for lack of better words, do their homework, that's the perfect time to see a psychologist. So there's no, nothing necessarily clinical in there. It's just we, we're not in the right Disconnect. mindset. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, not in the right mindset to, to, to sort of bring intention into action. Um, I think, of course, if the person um, brings into the session or alludes to anything of a psychological nature that is affecting their progress, um, so, uh, and sometimes these are things that like clients will just sort of throw in as a throwaway line. We need to sort of sometimes pick up that throwaway lines. So if they talk about um, a very, you know, say a very difficult um, work situation that's giving rise to a lot of emotional eating, it's like, well, I can help you understand emotional eating. I can help you develop some new coping strategies, but I probably can't help you resolve this work situation. Or if somebody has a, you know, if it is weight loss, somebody has a a complex relationship where a partner might be preventing them from losing weight or sabotaging their weight loss. You can say, well, look, I can maybe give you some ideas on being assertive or tell you how to, you know, just encourage you to um, have enough uh, respect for yourself and courage to make your own food choices. But if you're in this very complex, difficult relationship, maybe that's too hard. And so you need to go and see a psychologist to help you work through that. Um, Or of course, if a person has a, you know, say a history of uh, trauma or abuse, and that is bringing its its way into to um, to your sessions. That you know, any of those sort of things that where you you, you the person's bringing uh, any psychological concerns into the sessions, and you know they're affecting the sessions, but you can't quite figure out. Um, you you don't you don't have the answer. Um, and then, of course, there is the mental health concerns. So if the person has uh, an eating disorder or eating disorder symptoms, if the person has conditions such as depression or anxiety, so the more obvious things. So those that early time of your interaction with the client, your listening skills are really key to be picking up on cues that and, and delving in a little bit more to those rather than just dismissing some throwaway lines as uh, unimportant. Yeah, absolutely. So, Glenn, so you, your practice um, is dedicated to these issues. Um, you're based in Queensland. Is it accessible to people in other states around Australia? Yeah, it absolutely is. I think that there, we've got um, six psychologists now and we all specialise in eating, physical activity, weight and body image. So we actually do, 
it's almost half of our work now is via telehealth. And right. a lot of our referrals do come from, from dietitians. So, yeah, absolutely. We can, uh, we can work with you. And I think it's a really good thing because a lot of the things we're talking about today are they're psychodietetic in nature. And so I, I think that if we're doing our jobs well together, we actually do part of each other's job and we step on each other's toes in a really, really good way. And, and, and working with a psychologist who specializes in this stuff can really help you. Uh, firstly, it helps your clients. Secondly, it helps make your work easier because you're doing more of the stuff that you're trained to do. But also it can be a really great way to learn because we kind of learn from each other through the clients. So uh, that's awesome. So people can refer to you and we'll put the link uh, to your practice in our show notes so people can um, go to your website for more details. So, and just finally, if if you could give uh, us and us, our dietitians um, are our prime audience here, one really key takeaway message on the psychology of weight loss, what would your your words of wisdom be? I would say my words of wisdom would be, I would say that, Weight concerns, uh, it's a complex, multifactorial kind of issue. And it is, I think it's too big for dietitians or psychologists or doctors or exercise physiologists to do alone. So I think that we actually need to do it together. So I think firstly, you know, we started off by saying that this journey, is, if it's a weight loss journey, this is a big journey for a person. So they need to be ready and ready for, to, for the commitment to undergo that process and to undertake it. But then they need probably us as individual practitioners, but more than that, a support team around them. And typically that support team is, I think when it comes to weight concerns, is dietitian, psychologist at the front, then medical doctor and exercise physiologist slash, you know, movement expert. And people need most people will need at least a combination of a couple of them. Sometimes people will need all of them. That's We've covered a lot today. We've gone from initial consult through some of the issues you need to take into account. Hopefully, uh, we've given uh, dietitians a few tips and also just whet their appetite on going and learning more about this area because I think uh, anything that we can do to help dietitians provide the best care for their clients, as you said, really supports everyone in meeting their goals. And that's the healthcare professional as well as the client. So, Glenn, thanks so much for taking the time to run us through that today. Um, as I said, we'll put a link to your practice in our show notes. And we'd also like to thank, again, Nestle Health Science for supporting this podcast episode. So thank you very much for your time, Glenn. Thanks so much for having me. To get all of the links and resources we discussed through this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review for us and a rating on the Apple Podcast app. Tell us what you thought about this episode, what you learned, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We really value hearing from you and we really value your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.